Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Pastor Larry looks into scripture that calls for vengeance on our enemies. But first, we continue our anniversary month celebration with another legacy program from the Radio Vault. We're just over two weeks away from the Fort Wayne, Indiana Prophecy Conference, April 22nd and 23rd. This conference will feature Jeff Kinley, Michael Hoggard, Kamal Salim, Dr. Kenneth Hill, Larry Spargimino, James Collins, Larry Stamm, Dr. Douglas Petrovich, and Micah Van Hus. Registration is free, but seating is limited, so make sure you visit swrc.com and click on Events. Or you can just simply call 1-800-652-1144 and register for the Fort Wayne, Indiana Prophecy Conference, April 22nd and 23rd. The entire month of April is devoted to remembering the history and legacy of Watchmen on the Wall. We're celebrating 89 years of God's faithfulness. One of the ways we're celebrating is by bringing out some of the most requested programs of the past. Today, we finish listening in on Kenneth Hill and Noah Hutchings as they discuss what was then Noah's brand new book entitled, Why So Many Churches? Brother Ken, it's good to have you on the broadcast again. And yesterday, as time ran out, we were discussing what happened at Pentecost and what really did happen at Pentecost. Well, the question, of course, of what happened at Pentecost keeps being asked by those in churches around the world. And the question is, which ministry are we following? Are we following the ministry or the gospel of Peter or the ministry of the gospel of Paul? Are we mixing them together? And I think that that's where the problem comes in when we ask what did happen at Pentecost and what's its relationship to us today. We read at Pentecost that Peter said this is what Joel prophesied. And, of course, Joel didn't know anything about the church age because we're told that the Old Testament prophets didn't know anything about the church age. And if this is what Joel prophesied, did it not have a message primarily to Israel or only to Israel? Because we read that only Jews were at Pentecost, and they went out and they spoke in other languages that the Jews could understand. So it was a message that was to be heard by the Jews who were in Jerusalem. Now, did this concern the Gentile church age? In our opinion, it did not. Now, how can we say this? Because Paul said in Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 1 through 6, that the revelation concerning the church was not made known unto the sons of men of any former age. The Old Testament prophets of Israel knew nothing about the church. Joel knew nothing about the church or the gospel of grace. Yet Peter said what happened at Pentecost was that which had been prophesied by Joel. The question we must pose is why Gentile Christians tried to claim what happened at Pentecost to the disciples as a distinct gift from God to them, when this event was clearly a fulfillment of a sign to Israel that the day of the Lord was at hand. Prophecy of Joel concerns the day of the Lord. Get ready for the day of the Lord. As to the significance of the gospel of the kingdom as preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost and its relation to the gospel preached by Paul, let us consider the following. God chose one man, Abraham, to establish a nation. 
that might be his witness in the world and take the word of God to all men. This is the millennial gospel. Abraham originally spoke the Chaldean language, but he developed a new language which would serve as a base whereby he could communicate God's will and word to other races. This language was the Hebrew language, and it was doubtless given to Abraham by the Holy Spirit, and it's certainly a flowing, beautiful language, symphonic. Christ prophesied in the Olivet Discourse that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to all nations for a witness, and it will, but preached only by Israelites. This mass communication of God's message to all men will be accomplished by an outpouring of the Spirit as explained in the second chapter of Joel, verse 28, and many other scriptures. God's Word cannot be proclaimed except men be led of the Holy Spirit to understand it. The commission given to the apostles in early Jewish church was to go into all the world preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but their mission was to begin at Jerusalem. They knew nothing of the gospel of grace at that time. Had Israel received and believed the gospel concerning Jesus Christ according to the covenants, God would have sent Jesus Christ back at that time as Peter promised to Israel in Acts 3.19. Because Israel as a nation still rejected Christ as the Messiah who would bring in the kingdom of heaven, the apostles were bound to their first order, and they remained ministers to the circumcision or to Israel all their lives. To contend that the Apostle Paul and the Twelve Apostles of Jerusalem preached the same gospel is only to display one's misunderstanding of the inspired Word of God. The church at Jerusalem didn't even know what Paul preached until he went up to Jerusalem as recorded in Acts 15 and explained it to them. Of this conference, Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, And I went up by revelation of the Holy Spirit and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. As God prepared the apostles and the early disciples of the Jewish church to go into all the world from Jerusalem and preach the gospel to all nations of many languages, it is evident that they would have to be equipped for their mission. We read in Acts chapter 2, verse 7, that every single disciple gathered together on the day of Pentecost was a Galilean. The aristocratic Judeans spoke at least three languages, but the poor and backward Galileans could hardly speak their own Hebrew. In order to complete their mission to other nations, they would of necessity have to speak in other tongues or other languages. Acts 2, verses 1 through 4 records this, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice, as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's nothing strange or mysterious about this outpouring of the Spirit if we will just let God's Word stand as it is. They simply preached the Word, the gospel of the kingdom, to Jews from 18 foreign nations that had returned to Israel as a sign that this was that which was prophesied concerning the promise of the kingdom of God, preparing Israel to go into all the world and preach this gospel. Endowed with spiritual powers of communication by the Holy Spirit, these ignorant men, according to Judean standards, spoke fluently 18 different languages. Some were so difficult that even the Romans had not been able to master them. They did not need an interpreter. For this was a true manifestation of the Holy Ghost power that was promised to Israel. 
as it will later come upon all Israel when Christ returns and is enthroned upon the throne of his father David. Now, this Holy Ghost power, of course, continued to be extended to Jewish disciples and even to the Jewish proselyte Cornelius as a sign that the offer of the kingdom was still in effect. But God allowed it, we believe, to go no further as Israel more and more turned their backs in unbelief and began to kill and persecute the disciples. We don't read anything further of the disciples at Jerusalem speaking in other languages. It was then that God sent Paul abroad with the gospel of grace, establishing churches in each country, town, and community where each local assembly could be a witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ to their own people. The offer of the kingdom was gradually set aside with the ministry of Israel, which was to go into all the world in the power of the Holy Ghost, witnessing to all peoples, nations, and tongues. The authority given by the Holy Ghost, whereby the disciples might speak in other languages, we believe, was gradually withdrawn as the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple approached. As this event became near, the gospel of the kingdom began to be withdrawn. There is no evidence in any of the Pauline epistles that any Gentile Christian was ever given this power or authority under the commission of grace. This outpouring of the Spirit unto common universal communication is an entity of the kingdom of heaven, and it is in no way, we believe, connected with the gospel of grace, because Israel rejected this great kingdom-age sign that was given at Pentecost. The Jews themselves would be preached to by people with stammering tongues or other languages, as we read in Isaiah 28:11 and Isaiah the 33rd chapter, verse 19. In comparison to the Hebrew, of course, all Gentile languages are thought to be harsh and stammering. Now, there is no such thing, we believe, as an unknown tongue given by the power of the Holy Ghost, according to modern interpretations, of course, unless it be the language of angels mentioned once by the Apostle Paul. But of what good would it be in the universal purpose and plan of God? In all references in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians to the unknown tongue, the word unknown is in italics indicating that it was not in the Greek text. The ability to speak in a diversity of tongues is definitely a spiritual gift and of great benefit to Christian missionaries to communicate with the heathen the gospel of grace. But before missionaries go to other countries, they have to go and learn the language. Are we to believe that all these missionaries on foreign fields are unbeliever and lost simply because they can't go over there and start speaking in Swingali or Uganda or something like that? Certainly not. Well, the church at Corinth was the most spiritually confused church mentioned in the New Testament. It misappropriated every basic fundamental of the faith. Paul charged them as still being babes in Christ. They were yet carnal, and Paul could preach nothing to their spiritual understanding save Jesus Christ and him crucified. One of their great faults was in confusing their ability to speak in other languages with Pentecostal power. Paul exposed their folly as he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13, Wherefore let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue, and the unknown is in italics, pray that he may interpret. 
To speak in a foreign language is one thing. To interpret in another language is quite another. The disciples at Pentecost needed no interpreter, and the Holy Spirit never does. For as Paul declares in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit speaketh expressly. He always has, and he always will. Unbelievers at Pentecost had no trouble understanding the disciples, while the unbelievers at Corinth, who came to that church, thought the members were mad because there was so much confusion in the assembly. You can find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 19. Paul informed the Corinthians that he spake in tongues more than any of them, and he did. He would preach to the different people as he witnessed to in his missionary journeys. If speaking in tongues or other languages is proof of ultimate spirituality and sanctification, why did Paul write that he struggled to keep his body under subjection lest he become a castaway? Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, that tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Paul makes it very clear in the 28th chapter of Acts that it is Israel that believes not, and the Gentiles who would hear and believe. The gift of tongues by Holy Ghost power was another sign to Israel at Pentecost that the kingdom was being offered by God at that time, and the preaching of the gospel to Israel in languages other than Hebrew by Gentiles is also a sign to Israel that the kingdom has been set aside until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Thus we see the properly appropriating the gift of speaking in tongues to Peter's ministry, the gospel of the kingdom, and divorcing it from Paul's ministry, the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. We resolve one of the major doctrinal issues that separates or divides segments of Christendom into various church bodies and denomination by explaining the Pentecostal manifestation of tongues. It should be self-evident that the Pentecostal churches, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, and the Episcopalians, and all other denominations, cannot all interpret, for example, tongues, and that is going to include baptism of the believer, and all be right. There's simply no way that all these churches can interpret differently the speaking in tongues issue and the issue of baptism or the doctrine of baptism and all be right. There is no way. Someone is not interpreting the scriptures right. Now, I have no illusions that we will, to any degree, influence greater understanding and brotherhood among the churches in this series of messages. If Paul could not accomplish Christian unity in his day, our chances today certainly are infinitely less. Paul lamented at the close of his ministry, all the churches in Asia have turned against me. Paul outlined the great frustrator of the gospel of grace that divided Christians in Galatians, the first chapter, verses 7 and 8. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, meaning unto you Gentiles, than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. This other gospel that was preached to the Galatians, as Paul brings out throughout his epistle, was that which was preached unto them by those who came down from the church at Jerusalem. Peter got into trouble when he went down and tried to instruct the Christians at Antioch. Paul got into trouble when he ignored the warnings of the Spirit and went back up to the temple at Jerusalem. Christians have been getting into trouble ever since because they have not rightly divided the Word of God. In discussing the second part of Peter's first sermons to Israel, 
It is important to note that the ministry of the early Pentecostal Jerusalem church revolved around the temple. Look in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. The messianic promise to Israel concerning the opening of the doors of the kingdom was when the Lord would suddenly come to his temple. Peter and his disciples had every right to expect the Lord to return to the temple upon the acceptance of the gospel which he preached to Israel. This is why the temple continued to be the center of their activity. After Peter declared the pouring out of the Spirit and the disciples talking in other languages as the sign of the kingdom prophesied by Joel, he next called the attention of Israel to the sign given by David in chapters 1 through 17 of 2 Samuel and chapter 110 of Psalms. This sign given by the patriarch David was that God would not let the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, see corruption, but would be raised from the grave and seated at the right hand of God until the enemies of Zion would be made his footstool. Peter concluded the second point of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter here is still preaching to the house of Israel, no Gentiles. This second sign, like the first sign, concerned only Israel, mainly the exalted Christ who would deliver the house of Israel from those who oppressed it. At this time it was the Roman Empire. What did this congregation of Israelites do when Peter completed his revelation of these two important messianic covenant signs that were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, Luke informs us that they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, the other eleven, What shall we do now that we have crucified the Messiah? That is what they cried out. What hope is there now if we have crucified the Christ? Let us read carefully what Peter told them to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and all, meaning Israelites, that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. He is talking here to Israelites, not to Gentiles. And that is very, very important because Peter specifically makes it clear that this is the promise to Israel. No reference here to Gentiles. This particular scripture is another one that has further divided and separated from fellowship many believers in Christ not because of the truth of the Scripture, because all Scripture is true, but rather because of what men have tried to interpret from it. It is difficult for me to understand why Christians would misunderstand or misapply this Scripture. The word is emphatic. Peter is replying to a question asked by Jews, by those who belonged to the house of Israel. There was not a Gentile among them. The answer Peter gave was, to inform them what Israel must do to make restitution for crucifying their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Gentiles didn't crucify Jesus Christ. Not only did it pertain to those Israelites in the land, but to those groups from 18 nations that had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and to all their brethren in these different lands. 
But again, nothing is said here about Gentiles or any reference to Gentile is even implied. In fact, Peter definitely excluded the Gentiles when he said, For the promise is unto you. Get the complete Why So Many Churches legacy conversation between Noah Hutchings and Kenneth Hill on CD when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Today, we're once again excited to offer the book Why So Many Churches by Noah Hutchings, back in print for the first time in years. If you've ever wondered why there are so many denominations, then you'll want to read and study this book. And today, when you order Why So Many Churches, you'll receive a copy of Noah Hutchings' autobiography free. Order Why So Many Churches by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order online, swrc.com. And remember, when you order Why So Many Churches, you'll receive Noah Hutchings' autobiography entitled, As It Is in the Days of Noah, for free. 1-800-652-1144. Pastor Larry Spargimino comes now to discuss the Psalms that call for the destruction of our enemies. There are several Psalms and portions of Psalms in which the author invokes misfortune suffering, and divine wrath upon individuals, groups, and situations. In Psalm 5, verse 10, the psalmist says, Destroy thou them, O God, let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. Notice the psalmist says, for they have rebelled against thee. David is not upset because of what has happened to him personally, but it is an issue of God's honor. Psalm 139 verses 21 and 22 present a similar idea. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? It's not because of offenses against David, but because of offenses against his God. David, as Israel's king, is God's agent of rule on the earth. An attack on David is an attack on God's sovereign rights of lordship. The bottom line is that these imprecatory psalms communicate a deep yearning for justice written from the point of view of those who have been cruelly oppressed. Jesus taught that God's people have the promise of divine vengeance, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, Though he bear long with them, we read in Luke 18, 7, and then Jesus said, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. The imprecatory Psalms are simply a reflection of the justice of God. Prayers of imprecation are not unique to the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, the Apostle Paul writes, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. During the tribulation, John has a vision of the souls of the martyrs. In Revelation 6, verse 10, they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. These imprecations point to the future final judgment. 
Though God is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, the fact is that multitudes do perish. There is a human rights disaster of epic proportions occurring in Ukraine right now. Russian soldiers under orders from Central Command are committing atrocities that would shock the most callous individual. Russian tanks have shelled Europe's largest nuclear reactor. The probability of a radiation leak that would affect millions downwind is high. We pray fervently that these atrocities would stop immediately. Yes, it would be wonderful if there is heartfelt repentance and the barbarity would stop. We should pray and work for repentance. Praying fervently for the redemption of wicked individuals is a right and proper thing. But surely, God has our permission to intervene and stop the cruelty in whatever way he sees fit, even through the sudden destruction of the perpetrators of this evil. Sometimes the longing that we have for justice and the deliverance of the oppressed through divine judgment has to show up in our prayer life. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we read in Matthew 6.10, it's a very important prayer. A prayer for God's kingdom to manifest itself is a prayer for justice. Though Jesus gave his life and shed his blood for the salvation of the worst of sinners, he nevertheless stated in Matthew 11.22, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Jesus acknowledged the reality of divine justice. He came to pay the penalty for our sins, but recognized the fact that there are those who will not repent. Praying imprecatory prayers doesn't mean, first, that we should only pray imprecatory prayers for the enemies of the kingdom. Our first request should be for mercy, forgiveness, and repentance. Secondly, praying imprecatory prayers does not mean we're venting a vindictive heart, but rather that we seek vindication for the honor of God and the well-being of those who are oppressed. Thirdly, prayers of imprecation are nothing more than our prayers based on the character of God and his many promises of judgment. In Matthew 7.23, Jesus says that on the day of judgment, he will say to hypocrites, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Fourthly, we must remember that while God is merciful, his mercy, if it is continually spurned, turns into judgment. God withdraws his mercy and surrenders that individual to doom. Romans 1.24 says, Wherefore God also gave them up to the uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. And again in verse 26 we read, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Someone might ask, Well, Pastor Larry, do you pray prayers of imprecation? My answer, very infrequently, but on occasion I do. I would much rather pray as Jesus did for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But I also remember that Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Order Why So Many Churches by Noah Hutchings by calling 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. And remember, when you order Why So Many Churches, you'll receive Noah Hutchings' autobiography, as it is in the days of Noah, for free. 
Order now, 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow, Michael Hoggard will be discussing giants, and Larry Stamm continues his series on the Jewish roots of Christianity. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for 89 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.